The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've been walking through this, and um, uh, we're just in chapter 1, so if you're new, you uh, started to say you haven't missed much, but you've missed a lot, but you aren't at a place where you can't just jump in. So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, but while you're turning there... Uh, the world pictures heaven uh, as a place for only people who deserve to be there. I would go a little further, and I would even say that I think sometimes the world pictures church as a place where only people who deserve to be there are there, uh, and that's why some people stay away. There's a show on NBC, and frankly, it's in its second season, and I'm not sure why it's in its second season, because I didn't think it would make it past the first. Um, it's, it's called The Good Place. Uh, this is not a commercial for this show. I, I watched it a couple times because it was intriguing to me, and I'm not advertising for the show. Uh, but it's called The Good Place. It stars Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. Um, that's partly why I wanted to see it. It's because uh, Ted Danson was in it. But uh, Ted Danson is this, what's called the architect of, of heaven or the good place. Uh, he's there kind of overseeing. He's the one who's kind of built and constructed, and he's in charge of who's in and who's out and, and the, the, uh, the activities for the day and, and whatsoever of the good place or heaven. Kristen Bell's character dies on earth, and to her surprise, she finds herself in the good place. And she realizes that there's been a mistake made. Uh, she should not be in the good place. In fact, she should be in what NBC calls the bad place, Right that uh, she should be not in the good place. And, and the whole premise of the show is that no one else realizes that Kristen Bell's character should not be there, that they think, well, she must be a good person, therefore she deserves to be here. She knows the truth, and so before anybody else finds out, she has to somehow rehabilitate herself, turn over a new leaf, change her character before anyone finds out so that she now deserves to stay in the good place. Um, somehow the computers confused her life with somebody else, and she doesn't deserve to be there, but, uh, but she's there. And I think this is sort of a social commentary on what the world thinks about heaven and the church, that it's only a place for people who deserve to be there, and if I don't deserve to be there, then I just probably should stay away, or I'll never get there. I'll be in somewhere else, or, or whatever the case may be. The Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible teaches that what unifies Christians in heaven and on earth, in, in church uh, faith families together, what unifies us is not our deserving of good things. What unifies us is really our badness. It's not our goodness, it's our badness. What unifies us is the fact that we don't deserve, right? That's what really gathers us together. Um, some Christians live in, in, a, in a constant state of fear I think that perhaps there's been a mistake made. That they sort of see themselves as Kristen Bell's character that maybe everybody else deserves to be here, but I don't think I deserve to be here. Maybe there's been some mix-up. Maybe there's been some glitch. It's been a terrible mistake. I don't think I should be here. Maybe they're not what everyone else thinks they are. Maybe they don't deserve to, to be in church or to one day go to heaven. I think a lot of Christians live sort of in that place of fear and wondering, has there been a mistake made? And for a lot of us, I think the reasons there are 
we only see the best of other people because we often don't let ourselves see each other at our worst. And we see ourselves for all of what we are, and we, we know the worst about ourselves. We read in Scripture, and we read that, hey, we're new in Christ, but we know that a lot of times in our daily living of our lives that maybe we're not necessarily as godly as we should be. And therefore, we think something must be wrong. There must have been a glitch. Something's not happened. Something didn't click. It's not right. And so today, what I want to do is I want to finish out this very long run-on sentence. In fact, this passage that we're in is the longest sentence in all of the Bible. It started in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, and it goes through verse 14 today. And in this last section here, we've spent three weeks on this, there are three themes that, have, that, that jump out to us today. Uh, from the beginning, we, we, we looked at election, and, and uh, we looked at predestination, we looked at adoption. Last week, we looked at redemption. But today, there are three themes that I think jump out. We'll spend the bulk of our time on two. And then we'll sort of wrap everything else up and apply in the third theme. These themes are the theme of unity, assurance, and glory. So if you will, follow along with me as we read Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. The Bible here says, In Him, again, this constant, in Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, <clears throat> were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. <clears throat> first, I want to just dive in, and I want to show you something that might not jump off the page at first, and it's the topic or the issue of unity. Uh, <clears throat> if I wanted to put a little tagline on this, or just a little sentence to sort of sum up this unity here, I would tell you that there are no black sheep in God's family. There are no outcasts. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom that we're all unified. And I want to show you this from the passage. In verses 11 and 12, Paul uses we language. He uses the personal pronouns we. He uses them twice in 11 and 12. Then in 13, he switches to you. And he uses you or a form of you, in my Bible, your, three times. <clears throat> and, and it begs the question, who is he talking about? Is he drawing a distinction between two separate groups of people? This we and you. Is this what the church is? Is this what following Christ is all about. Christianity is a we, them. Is that what this is? There's a lot of people that would think this is how it should be or how it is. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing at all. Let's look closer. Verses 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Well, the question is, who were the first to hope in Christ? If we, if we think about it logically and we, we think back, we think through our Bibles, the first to hope in Christ were those Jewish believers. Those that were of Jewish descent and they became believers. 
In fact, I think there are two groups that are probably mentioned here, or at least referred to here. I think Paul has in mind when he says, we who were the first to believe, I think he has that group of Old Testament believers that looked forward to the Messiah, even though the Messiah hadn't arrived yet. Hebrews 11 kind of sums up and gives us some of these that would would fit in this group. Hebrews 11 tells us of men and, and, and women like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. <clears throat> All of those people that I just mentioned who lived during the Old Testament times, none of them saw Jesus. None of them, none of them were alive when Jesus was born as a baby. Yet, they're included there in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith, because they looked forward with faith to the promised Messiah that Jesus would send. I think there are people who lived in Old Testament times who were in heaven at the moment. Hebrews 11 tells us that because they looked forward believing that God would keep His Word. In fact, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden And there in Genesis 3, God makes the promise to send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And it is the first promise of the gospel, the good news, that God would send a Savior. And so all through the Old Testament, there are those that that listen to God's Word and take Him at His Word and believe and look forward to even though they never saw. In fact, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The point there is, even though they did not see, Jesus did not come in their lifetimes, they looked forward to the promised Messiah in faith. The the second group, I think, that Paul has in mind when he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ are those that lived in the time of Jesus who were of Jewish descent who came to believe in Jesus. And who were these people? Well, they were the disciples. They were the apostles. It was Peter and James and John, Mary and Martha. It was the 120 disciples who are mentioned there after His resurrection, before His ascension. It was Barnabas and Stephen who was the first martyr. And it was Paul himself who was in that group of the first to hope in Christ. Jesus Himself, when He came in Matthew 15, 24, when a woman of of Gentile descent begged Him for a miracle, Jesus Himself, in Matthew 15, 24, went on to say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus, I, I was talking to somebody this week, Jesus never served his own agenda. He was there at the Father's bidding. And I don't want to say that to say that there is some division between the the will of Jesus and the will of the Father. The will of Jesus was always to carry out the will of the Father because they are one and the same. But Jesus knew that when he was on earth, he was sent to the Jews. And there were several Jews who came to believe in him. And that's who Paul, I think, is referring to there in 11 and 12 when he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Then he goes to verse 13. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just back up there and let me talk a little bit about the concept of inheritance here that's also mentioned in 11 and 12. On one side, when it says here that we have obtained an inheritance, on one side, 
we think of inheritance as something that we receive. If, if you are an heir, you receive something, right? I right now have 1979 GMC pickup truck parked at my house that was my grandfather's that I now have because I inherited that and look forward to restoring that truck, right? We think of what we might receive. That's possibly what's in mind here, and I think probably it is. But this, the, the way the, the, the grammar is used, it could also be talking about this, um, this, this other side, and not something that we receive, but that God historically referred to the Jewish people as His inheritance. That it's not something that we receive, but that we are the inheritance of God. Specifically, not us yet, not at this point, not in verses 11 and 12, that, that the Jewish people, those that were the first to hope in Christ... God had historically referred to them as His inheritance. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you up out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance, as you are this day. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so God historically refers to the Jewish people as His inheritance, as His treasured possession. This is a concept that we'll come back to in in just a little bit. I think here when Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance, possibly what he means is, we have been apportioned as an inheritance to God having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. One can get the sense that Paul thinks that Jewish believers are superior from this. You can begin to think, well, man, Paul's talking about we who were the first to hope in Christ are the inheritance of God. We are His treasured possession. And some might come to that and say, Paul, you seem to think that somehow there are two classes of people in God's family. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. And I'll prove it to you by just looking through the rest of the passage. In verse 13, he changes his language and he goes from we, who were the first to hope in Christ, and in verse 13 he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, who is this You also, who are the recipients of the letter? Isn't it the Ephesian Christians, the Ephesian believers? Specifically, Gentile believers. Those who were outside of the nation of Israel who had come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And that God had extended His grace beyond the Jewish people to now Gentiles who would believe. Those who were not born into the right family, if you will. Those who weren't citizens of the holy nation of Israel. Yet those who heard the gospel and believed. And Paul's little use of, uh, use of this little word also, when he says you also, is very important. Paul says there in verse 13, you also. It means that everything that was true of the Jewish believers was now also true of the Gentile believers. And this is enormous. Because I don't know about you, but I wasn't born into a Jewish family. 
I'm not part of the holy nation of Israel. I'm a Gentile. I find myself in this second group. I've come to believe. And God's grace has been extended to me. And so this is pretty important when He says to him, you also. Because they both were in Him. And that's key. I've said to you over and over again, He just repeats Himself in Him. In Him. In Him. All these things are true. And because both the Jewish believers, the first to hope in Christ, and the Gentile believers, those also who had heard the Gospel and believed, because they were in Him, both were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Both were chosen before the foundation of the world. Both were adopted into the family of God. Both were redeemed by the blood of Christ and had their sins forgiven. Both, we could say, are now included in the inheritance of God. It's not only that, that we have an inheritance, and certainly that is true, and that is the thrust of this, this section of Scripture, that we have an inheritance that is coming to us. But we can honestly say the Bible here teaches that for Jewish believer and Gentile believer alike, we are called the inheritance of God. That we are His treasured possession. And this is enormous. This is the first time this has ever really come to be that Gentiles were included in this language. From two separate people groups, God creates one. And this is the unity that I'm telling you. There are no black sheep in God's family. In verse 14, He changes His pronoun again. He started with, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Moved to, you who also believed. And in verse 14, he changes back to we or specifically our. It's a beautiful word that we would miss if we just read through this in a hurry. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Paul is not drawing distinctions between well, you know, we're probably a little higher and closer to God than you are because we were the first to hope in, in, in Christ. You know, that's our society is whoever gets there first is better, right? I mean, anybody have small kids and they get competitive over everything? Like, whoever can get in bed first is the winner. Whoever can buckle their seatbelt first is the winner. I think I saw that on somebody's social media recently. That's our society. And God says, no, 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 no. Because it was never based on your merit, your intellect, your quickness. It was based on my choice, my election, my predestination, my adoption, my redemption. It's my work from beginning to end. One of the things that I was just, Matt and Ethan and I, we gather ahead of time before the service and we pray together. And I was talking with Matt ahead of time. Matt had looked into this passage last week because he preached and there's so much in these verses. I originally to this sermon had seven points. And I cut it back to, to three, right? And one of those is, is sort of just like an application at the end, okay? There's so much here. And one of the things that's here that I don't have time to bring out to you, but I guess I am anyway, is the Trinitarian nature of God that is revealed in this passage. 
But it is the Father who elects and chooses and predestines. And it is the Son in whom we are redeemed and we are in Him. And now we're going to see in this passage that it's the Spirit who seals us and guarantees our inheritance. This is just beautiful. This is, this is God all over the place. Paul's language here is no longer we and you. It's now our. It's going to be the theme of this book in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And at 11 through 14, if you just look over there, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. There's those two groups. It's the we and you which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, there's that but God again, right? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christianity, I don't have a time to go into all that I had to illustrate this, but Christianity sometimes gets a bad rap for being a divisive religion. It couldn't be any further from the truth. Christianity is not a religion that divides. In fact, if, and, and this is not in my notes, but if you were to go uh, various parts of the world, there are religions that divide. There are places in the world where if you, try, if you convert to Christianity out of a certain religion, your life will be in danger. You will be disowned by your family. The government will threaten you, possibly place you into prison. It's not Christianity that is a divisive religion. In fact, Christianity is the most unifying religion that exists, if we want to use that, that identification of a religion. Christians are are not people who judge and seek to divide, but they are people who understand that even though they deserve the harsh judgment of God, they have received mercy and been brought into His family as one. What this means for us, church, is that there are no people groups that live in the Greenville-Spartanburg area or that live in Morocco or that live in uh, Indonesia or that live anywhere in the world that are untouchable. What this means for us is that the gospel then compels us who have been brought in through the grace of God, not deserving it, but it compels us to then go out to the nations, to the people who the rest of the world says, oh, not them. It means that there are no people in the Greenville-Spartanburg area that are beyond the reach of the grace of God. We don't know who those people are whom God will save It is not our job to know who they are. It is our job. It is our responsibility. It is our privilege to go to those who are outcast and away from God, far from Him and without hope in this world, and to take to them the message of the Gospel and extend to them the grace that's offered to them in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. At a local church level, if we're not talking about going, and we're talking about then us gathering, at this level, what this means for us is that there are, there are 
There's not a level or a hierarchy here of where you stand. I'm so thankful to, to pastor this church. There are churches where, depending on how long you've been there, or how much money you give, or what public office you hold, or something else, you have a little bit higher standing in that church. You have a little bit more say in what goes on or what doesn't go on. And that's not the case in God's church. It should not be the case. It, whether you are a longtime member here or a newcomer who's visiting, the Bible teaches that in Christ we are one. That there is no you and we. That there is only our. That we're all fortunate to be a part of God's church here at Abner Creek. That no one's entitled to more benefits than anyone else. That, 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 oh, that we would get this. That we would understand that we are one because of the gospel and may the unmerited unity that we have in, gospel, in, in the gospel drive us to unprecedented acts of faith and worship. There is unity to be had in the gospel. The world thinks of the church and thinks of heaven as that place where people belong get to go there. No, no, no. None of us belong. Yet we are all one. Amen? The second thing I'll point out to you in this passage today is the theme of assurance. If I added a tagline to this, I would say that members of God's family have no reason to fear abandonment or disqualification. Most Christians, I think, struggle with doubt at some point in their walk with Christ. For some, it's, it's minor. For some, it's ever so often a, a doubt will come your way, but it's not something that paralyzes you and you can kind of get over it pretty quickly. You, you bring yourself back to the truth of the gospel and you say, no, 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 in the gospel I am saved. And you, and you go on. For others, it's not minor. It is a major issue. And it is one that you can't seem to move past and it plagues you. And you wrestle with it and you lose sleep over it and, and, uh, and it is just something that, is, that some will not understand. It is a major battle for you. Well, I believe God wants us to know that we are saved and secure in Him. Four reasons I think this passage gives us of why we shouldn't doubt. I want to run through these. I want to jog through these, I should say, because I want you to hear them. Four reasons that you shouldn't doubt. Number one is because He chose you. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What this means is, this little phrase here where it says, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This jumped out at me this week. You know what this means? God consults no one. He doesn't have to. You know, I want to buy a new pair of shoes. What do I do? Yelp, you know. Reading reviews, how many stars they get. I'm talking to people, putting it out there on social media. Hey, I'm thinking about getting this pair of shoes. What do you think about these pair of shoes? Everybody comments. I had a pair of those shoes, but they kind of wore out on the, this part of the shoe. You might want to be careful of that. We consult, then it becomes overwhelming. Like, <laughs> I thought I knew what kind of shoes I wanted, right? And you wind up buying no shoes. You just walk around barefoot. 
right? God consults no one. God turns not to, to social media or to Yelp or to anyone else. God doesn't need to consult anyone. It's, has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? That nothing has ever taken Him by surprise, which means that if He chose you, your sin now has not taken Him by surprise. He takes counsel from no one. He knew you. He knows you still. He is not sitting in heaven wringing His hands going, probably should have thought that one through a little bit more, you know. Didn't realize she was going to be like that, you know. That's not God. God knows. Nothing dawns on Him because He knows all things. He knew what He was getting when He chose you. He didn't make a mistake. He wasn't scammed. It's not like He was outside the stadium on Saturday with a, looking for a pair of tickets to get in and paid some guy cash and got to the ticket taker and realized that these were fake tickets. God takes counsel from no one. In His infinite wisdom... And out of His abundant grace, He elects. Rest in the fact that He chose you. Don't doubt. Secondly, you don't need to doubt because your security is rooted in His reputation. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. It's the purpose clause in this. The whole reason that the, old, the Jewish believers believed was so that they might be to the praise of His glory. The whole reason that we also who heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed and were forgiven and redeemed, was so that we might be to the praise of His glory. Over and over again, Scripture is is filled with times that even though God's people weren't faithful, for the sake of His own name, God was faithful. One particular case in point, uh, Exodus 32, when Moses is up on the mountain with God and down in the valley, the people think, what's happened of, of Moses? We don't know what's happened. He may not come back. Aaron, make us a God that we might worship. So Aaron takes all the gold from them and he throws it in the fire and he melts it down and he fashions this golden calf. And they bow down and they worship this golden calf because that's what they had seen in, in Egypt for 400 years. And this whole thing of God leading them by pillar and fire and all this was, was fairly new to them, so they, this is reverted back. And even though they had just stood and promised, oh yes, all that you say we will do, Moses has gone for just a little too long and they revert back. They're faithless. And Moses up on that mountain, God tells him, your people, you better go back down because I am about to destroy them. And God reveals that He is about to. His desire at that moment is to destroy the wicked Israelites who have left off from worshiping Him to worship this golden calf. And Moses says to him, and and there's other issues that we could get into here, but Moses basically said to him, God, don't destroy the people. If you destroy the people, the Egyptians will say, it was for evil that He brought them out. See that God over there? 
He's capricious. He's evil. He's sadistic. You better be careful if you're going to follow him because you follow him and he will destroy you. And Moses realizes that the greatest motivator God has to save any of us is not us. Because all of us are bowing down before golden calves if it's up to us. God's greatest motivator in saving any of us and persisting in that salvation is not us, but His name. He saves us for His own glory. The Bible here says that, that, that over and over again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And this, this may seem self-serving and wrong for some of us. I was listening to sermons and I heard John Piper preach on this and teach on this. And I had no idea, I didn't know this. But do you, did you know that Oprah Winfrey and Brad Pitt, as well as others, walked away from evangelical Christianity because of this very thing? That God was a jealous God seemed self-serving to them. And it seemed wrong to them. And so they turned away and, and, and left off of following evangelical Christianity. For God to seek his own praise would in, indeed be wrong if he were a man like us. If he was merely a human being like us. But God is not a man or a woman like us. God is God. To whom can you compare God? Who else would you have him seek glory for? What's well, wrong for God to seek God's glory? Okay, well then whose glory should he seek? Do you see the error in this? For God to seek the glory of anybody but God would be sin. It would be idolatry on God's part. And God is infinitely holy. It is, not a, it is not an arrogant thing or a self-serving thing for God in the same way that it would be for us to seek His own glory. It is the only right thing for God to do. That God would glorify God. So don't fear, don't doubt, because God saves you for His own namesake. Number three. Reason number three you should not doubt is because you have been sealed. We see this there in, in uh, verses 13 and, and also in verse 14 that, uh, that the Holy Spirit seals us as believers. In, in that day, in, in, the, in the Old Testament days, in, in, the, in the ancient days, cattle were branded uh, so that they would be recognized by a seal. Now, we still, there are places in you know, probably Texas, Looking back there, they're probably still brand cattle, I'm sure, out there. Maybe here in South Carolina, too. Some people have moved on to tags in the years and this sort of thing. But it's, it, was, it was a way for them to, to show ownership. Now, there weren't fences, really, in those days. And so cattle wandered. You may just have a cow just show up at your front door. Whose cow is that? Oh, that's Joe's cow. Look, he's got his brand on it, right? And it showed, hey, this is Joe's cow. It also was a way of protection. That you couldn't, if a, if a cow shows up at my door one day, and whose cow is that? Says it's Joe's cow. Nah, it's not Joe's cow. It's my cow now. Guess what happens? Joe comes looking for his cow. He sees his brand. He's going to protect and take what is his. 
This is a wonderful thing for you and I when the Bible tells us that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, which means God doesn't take iron, place it in fire, and brand us. Instead, He takes the fire of His Holy Spirit and fills us. He marks us as His own. And He says, that one is mine. Mine. You go wandering in the world, people ought to say, who do they belong to? Oh, they belong to God. The Spirit is a mark of ownership, and it is also a mark of protection that God says, I will protect what is mine. I will keep what is mine. Verse 13, God gives us the promised Holy Spirit for the same reasons. You are His. He guards you and will not let you fall away. Perhaps you worry that one day you will abandon Christ, that you'll grow weary of trusting Him, but some tragedy or hardship will come into your life and it will, it will shake you to the core of who you are and you fear that in that moment you may turn away from following after Christ. The good news for us is the Holy Spirit seals us. And God says, no, no, no. I will never let that happen. For those who are truly His have been sealed with the Spirit of God. Number four, reason you should not doubt is because not only does God mark you as His and promise to protect you, but you have God's guarantee as well. Verse 14, who is the Spirit of God who seals us? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? And this is the flip side of the inheritance. that He's not here talking about the fact that we are the treasured possession of God, but He's now pointing to what He brought to our attention in verse 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That everything heaven has to offer is ours in Christ. Now, do we have everything that heaven has to offer currently at the moment? Yes and no. We are not seated at the, there looking at Jesus. We're, we're not able to reach out and touch Him and, and greet Him. and we don't, we don't have that yet. We are separated at this point from loved ones who have gone on to be with Jesus, right? But the Bible promises that we have this inheritance that is coming to us. And He guarantees it with the Spirit of God. And what this means for us is, it's similar to a down payment on a house that secures your position as the buyer, or the first fruits of a crop that illustrate and, and indicate what type of crop it's going to be and that the harvest is, the rest of it's going to come. In the same way, God gives us the Spirit as this foretaste of heaven to come. That He gives this down payment and He says, the Spirit lives within you. He leads you into all truth. He will convict you of error. He will bolster you. He will give you the strength that you need to follow me. He will cause you to cry out to me, Abba, Father. He will cause you to long to be with God's people. And I'm telling you, it's not the full thing yet. That God says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. It is the foretaste of heaven to come. It is a, it's God's promise of the rest that is on its way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he goes on and he says, You were sealed for the day of redemption. Meaning, not just sealed temporarily. You ever pick up something at the, at the grocery store and, and it's got this seal on it and you get home and you start to open it and realize that the seal is not quite on there real good? 
Uh, I buy these coffee creamers, you know, and what I, I, every time I pick one up, take the lid off, look, make sure the seal's good, put it back on, and then I buy it. This is not the picture of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God says, you're sealed all the way for the day of redemption. You will make it all the way through. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. There's a song that we sing on occasion uh, in this place called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And there's a line in that song, and I'm so glad we sing the songs that we do. There's a line in one of the, one of the verses that says, What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. This is a foretaste of deliverance. The spirit living inside of us is this foretaste of the deliverance that is ours. Let me skip one thing there and just move to this. The third theme in these, in the remaining verses here in this run-on sentence is the theme of glory. If I were to put a tagline on this, I would simply say, God's family exists to praise Him. We have been unified. We have been assured so that we might glorify Him and praise Him. This is the, really the whole overarching theme of this entire run-on sentence. All, all the way back to verse 3, all the way through to verse 14, repeatedly he says in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. In verse 12, to the praise of His glory. In verse 14, to the praise of His glory. When we see things repeated in passages of Scripture, it is a clue that that's important. And what's important here is that the theme of not only this section, but I would submit to you the theme of the Bible and the theme of your life, the theme of our life corporately together as a church, is to give God praise. Well, how do we do this? I told you this was going to be the point of application. How do we praise Him? How do, if we exist to praise Him, how do we do this? I mean, is it just singing? If it is, then let me sit down and Ethan get up here, right? Is it, is all it is, it's just music? How? Let me give you just four ways real quick. Number one, in displaying unity through meaningful church membership. I added that word meaningful because I think in our day and age, it has become easy to treat church membership as anything but meaningful. It is, it is pretty common to treat church membership as if it's just pretty common. Instead, what God calls us to is what we see in Acts chapter 2 and throughout all the book of Acts is that we would be devoted to one another. And that in our devotion to one another that we would be devoted to God and His Word. That we would be eager to meet together and pray together. We would redeem the time and sing songs to one another and to God. That we would open God's Word and say, God, would you speak to us? Lord, more than I need food today, Lord, I need to hear from you. When a brother or sister begins to stray in their following Christ, meaningful church membership is one that goes after that brother or sister out of love. It says, I'm not going to be content with the 99. I'm going to go after the one. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to confront them in their wandering and in their sin and, and hope to win them back. 
that I'm praying that God would grant them repentance, that they might come back, that I might win my brother or sister back. This is meaningful church membership. If we are unified, if there is no we and you, there's only our, then the way we do church should be different. It should be meaningful. Secondly, this theme of inheritance points us to how do we apply this? We rightly order what we value. I am all for going to see the football game. I am all for Black Friday shopping. I may not participate in it, but hey, I'm all for it if that's your thing, right? I'm all for all the things of, you know, I mean, as long as they're good and wholesome and God doesn't condemn them, I'm all for it. Let's enjoy life. Common grace says, man, enjoy. But we say to the world with what we with, with how we spend our time and how we spend our money, we say to the world what's really important to us. And I'm afraid that for many who claim the name of Christ, they don't say, Jesus is preeminent to me. Instead, what they say is football or stuff, right? So let's rightly order those things that we value. Number three, this theme, and I didn't cover it a lot, but I'll just point it out to you. Faith should move us to urgent evangelism. Verse 13, didn't have time to, to delve into this, but it just quickly says there, you also who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. You know what this should point us to? This is the reality that the only way people come into this family of God is by hearing the gospel. They don't come to know Christ simply by the way you walk or the way you cut your grass or the way you organize paper clips on your desk. Those are all good things and you should do them well. Do everything with excellence for the glory of God. But there comes a point when they must hear the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 17, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, but they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. How are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless they are sent? If you're waiting for someone to send you with a great commission, stop. Consider yourself sent. You have connections with people that I will never have. I have connections with people that you will never have. God has placed you in your life, in your sphere, in your neighborhood, in your job, in your family, exactly where you are so that you might be His representative as an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador doesn't get to make up his own story or change the message. He delivers the message he's given because he doesn't represent himself. He represents the one who sent him. Go. You are sent. We have the message of reconciliation. 
And then fourth today, how do we glorify God? How do we praise Him? Out of the theme that I covered of assurance, we rest in the Spirit's guarantee. And I know this is hard for some. This is a major battle for you in the area of assurance. And it's when I tell you to rest, you get more worked up trying to rest than, than, than I will ever think about. But I would just implore you to realize what God says. That if you have believed, you know, you know the way that you know that you've been saved? That you've heard and believed. Because the Bible tells us that we can't believe without the Spirit. The Spirit must lead us into that. And so if we have believed, then we have been saved. And if we have been saved, we have the Spirit. And if we have the Spirit, we have been sealed and guaranteed as His possession that the inheritance that is coming to us, we will receive. So rest in that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for freedom to be able to preach. God, I'm, I'm thankful for your word. And Lord, how complex it is. But Lord, also how simple you make it by leading with your spirit. God, I'm so thankful that you uh, have given us the spirit of God, that you've given us the gospel. Lord, I pray now that you would move us beyond what we've heard, Lord, to steps of obedience. Lord, perhaps there are things that, uh, that you're calling each of us individually as a result of hearing your word to do. God, I pray that you would give us the faith to do them. Lord, that you would give us the proper motive that we're not doing them to earn your favor, but we're doing them because we have your favor and because this is what you desire. Lord, would you glorify yourself through our responding to your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on the message, the word of God, and then to respond. Um, perhaps you need to just spend some time quietly talking to the Lord over this. Perhaps you just need to spend some time just reflecting over a particular phrase or a particular concept, the we, you, our concept, or something like that. Maybe, maybe God is bringing conviction in your life over some area that has been covered today. Maybe it's conviction of you've been sinful in it and you need to turn from it. I would implore you to do that today. Perhaps it's conviction not so much as you've been neglectful or sinful in it, but as much as God is leading you to begin here. I would implore you to follow. I'll be down at the front. I'd love for you to come and speak to me. I'd love to pray with you and, and start even a conversation that may last beyond this to help you. I want to be your pastor. I want to serve you in this. I want to shepherd you. We also have a, a prayer room that's through these doors to my right and your left where people will be there. They're church members who are filled with the Spirit of God who would just love to pray with you. They would just love to hear and pray. They're not there to counsel you. They just want to be a friend who comes alongside of you and takes your need before the Father. So if that's what the Lord would lead you to today, then do that. If there's something else that God has pressed on you, then I would just implore you to do it, to follow through, to be obedient, and let's glorify God in the way that we respond to His Word. Let's worship Him.
This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.